0: It is Monday, and that means it's time for me to be joined by my usual Monday guest. It's Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. Kyla, how are you doing here today?
1: I'm not bad, thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Hey, thanks as always for coming back on. So, I wanted to start today by by talking really about this horrible incident in, in Seattle. So, uh, I'll just give a little background for those who don't know. Early Saturday morning, some police brutality protesters were on the I-5 standing behind some parked cars set up for protection as they were obviously protesting on a highway. Now, a uh, really horrific video shows a car speeding towards these protesters, hits two of them, sending them flying down the freeway, and as of yesterday one of those two protesters has died. That's a 24-year-old woman and a 32-year-old man also struck remains in hospital really fighting for his life. Um, Now, this guy was charged with vehicular assault, and I imagine, uh, safe to say, that we would assume those charges will be upgraded now that we've seen someone, uh, you know, obviously die as a result of their injuries.
1: Oh, yes. In the U.S., you can attract a charge like vehicular manslaughter um, or even a a homicide charge, um, which would carry very significant penalties down
0: there. Yeah, and I would expect we'll see at least, you know, a manslaughter charge at the very minimum here. But, um, you know, what how high can this really go? I mean, this uh, it's hard to say how, where this guy's mindset was uh, when this incident occurred. I imagine that he just saw there was a protest going on and had uh, a real poor moment of judgment and decided that he was going to take matters into his own hands because he's offended by what's happening. Um, you know, can this go to a second degree? Like, how high could this potentially go if we are talking about upgrading to a murder charge?
1: Well, if the murder was planned and deliberate in the sense that he got in his car and he went out and he deliberately drove at that speed, um, you know, knowing full well that it could kill somebody and that was his intention, then he could end up with a first-degree murder charge. I think that there would be some difficulty without some type of statement or admission by him um, getting to first-degree murder just because the difficulty of proving that he intended to kill them in the manner of driving. But when you watch the video and you see the speed that he was going at... I mean, you watch it and you think, how could anybody survive being run over like that?
0: Yeah, and, and especially that they were hit r- really directly right head on, right? I mean, uh, I, th- I assume the person who did pass was the one who was hit right in the middle of the vehicle. There was another individual who uh, seemed to get hit more more clipped, I guess, compared to the, the other individual. So I assume that that's kind of how those injuries played out, is the one who was hit more on more directly as the one that passed away, unfortunately. Um, I, I did want to ask, too, while I have you, uh, just about, um, you know, just protesting on a highway uh, Washington State Police Patrol have come out and said that it will not be allowing protesters to enter i-5 and will not be uh, and will be arresting any pedestrians who are on the freeway um, were you just surprised at all to see that there was a demonstration happening on a highway given the you know clear uh, health risk that comes with being on uh, somewhere where you can drive as fast as you can on a freeway
1: I mean, yes and no. Uh, I think that definitely there's a safety concern if you're protesting on a highway and you haven't blocked off the entire highway to ensure that vehicles know that they're not going to you know, be proceeding down the highway. And from the video, it appears that several lanes of travel were still Open um, or not fully blocked off, where the prote- protesters were, um, and so they were in a safety pocket behind some vehicles. But there, you know, there was obviously an ability for cars to get through, and that and that raises concerns uh, for the safety of those individuals. If people are wanting to protest on a highway, what they should be doing is contacting, you know, their local authorities and and setting up um, an arrangement to allow them to shut down the highway. This happens a lot in the Lower Mainland, where the people notify police that they're going to be doing it, and. Police support is provided to allow the protest to happen in a safe way, um, as opposed to, you know, having the protest take place in a way that, exposes people to these risks, either of deliberate harm or of accidental
0: harm. hmm yeah, and, and I mean, clearly, in, if, if anyone has seen the video, the guy uh, driving this white Jaguar down the highway, uh, he had to swerve around a few vehicles to actually get into a position to hit these protesters, so clearly there was some thought planned, whether it was, you know, planned how far ahead of time, who knows, but uh, definitely had to maneuver around in order to to uh, go and, and do exactly what he did. Um, All right, moving on here, I did want to ask a little bit, too. So on Canada Day here, um, a driver of a McLaren, he rolled his vehicle on the Coquihalla near Merritt. The driver was a a man in his 40s from Kelowna. He said he lost control and hit the back of a semi-truck before rolling several times, crashing into the median. Um, Now, this man's reportedly a race car driver said that this crash occurred due to hydroplaning from intense rain and that speed was not a factor i mean uh, when we're talking about a supercar in this case you mean you almost always would assume that speed has to be a part of it but he says speed was not a factor this guy has a lot of experience driving some of these supercars um and hydroplaning was the cause according to him how easy is it uh to to prove that hydroplaning was a factor in a collision is that something in your experience as a lawyer that you've you know had to defend and had to really prove that that was what happened
1: well, if you're charged with an offense, either if you're issued a ticket or you're charged with dangerous driving as a result of something, it's a lot easier than dealing with it in the civil context and dealing with it with your insurer. So if you're you know, struggling to get ICBC to pay the claim for the very expensive car um, and struggling to get them to compensate you for your injuries, um, it's very difficult to prove this because unless the police come and do a proper investigation of the collision, look for evidence of braking, uh, tire marks on the road um, you know, factors that would point to a vehicle's speed at the time of impact and whether the vehicle took any evasive maneuvers, you're not going to have the evidence necessary to prove that because you're not going to gather it yourself at the time. You've just been in a serious collision. And as vehicles go by, once the highway's reopened, then all of those markings are going to be overridden by the markings from other vehicles. No so those this- become very difficult.
0: Yeah. So I was going to just say in, in this particular case, I don't believe any charges have been laid. Um, so with that being the case, I guess when you go to an insurance company, do they just sort of, you know, take the word for it that hydroplating was the reason behind that accident? Or, you know, with without the fact that there weren't any charges laid, does that just uh, make it a little bit easier to make that claim? It will
1: make it easier to make that claim because it it appears that, at least at this point, the police have accepted that hydroplaning was a possible or likely cause of the collision um, and that the collision wasn't the individual's fault through any type of of poor driving. Um, So that will make it easier, but it will also make it difficult if the insurance company pushes back and says, we have a witness report that you were driving really fast, or the other driver says that you were doing something wrong um, and tries to lay the blame on the driver in that circumstance. um, The Absence of a police investigation into the driving will complicate.
0: So if if this does happen to somebody, if they're listening, we've had a a lot of really uh, rainy weather here over the last uh, couple of months. It's been unfortunate. I want some sun, but we've been getting lots of rain. So this is something that could potentially happen to other people here uh, as we continue to experience this wet weather. Um, I guess what would be your advice to someone who maybe is looking to make that claim? If, If they are involved in a collision, hydroplaning was a factor in the collision. What steps should they take right afterwards to make sure they can prove that that was a thing that happened?
1: If you're able to, get out your phone, start taking pictures of the roadway where you lost control as much as possible, any oil slicks on the top of water resting on the roadway, anything like that that would support your version of events. Because if you leave it until later, then the insurance company is going to say, this isn't the conditions that you were driving in, this is the conditions later on. So as soon as possible, take as many photos as you can to preserve the evidence of the scene.
0: That's probably a good advice, I guess, for any collision, right? When, when anything happens, get out and, and try to document as much as you can. So, you can prove your point if and when you need to, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. Even take a video recording of your interactions and statements given to any other drivers or police that attend, because those things can often come back against you when dealing with the insurance company.
0: Perfect. Good advice for anybody. Hopefully, no one's involved in any collisions, but I already heard a few happen on the scanner here today. So, uh, yeah, if anyone is involved in listening, make sure you document what happens so you can prove, if necessary, what occurred. Now, I did want to ask you about one more thing, Kyla, before I let you go. Now, uh, as we get into summer here, RCMP saying they're starting to. Stay step-up enforcement as part of their annual counter impaired driving campaign. So basically doing more road checks and checking for impaired drivers. I just wanted to ask about this theory that uh, this really helps get drunk drivers or, or, or uh, impaired drivers, I guess, if you will, off the road. Is this something that do you find as a lawyer? Is it effective? Are these campaigns, because they cost quite a bit of money to run, are they effective in actually helping to reduce the amount of impaired driving we see?
1: The roadblocks themselves are not as effective as the attention surrounding the police ramping up the campaign. So really the thing that deters most people is the idea that they're going to be caught. So hearing about there being more roadblocks, uh, hearing that police are out in force, enforcing the impaired driving laws is going to make people make decisions before they go out and start drinking about arranging a safe ride home. Um, Having a roadblock out there might catch people who are already drinking and driving, but unless people know that it's there, it's not going to change their behavior before they get behind the wheel.
0: So it's really more about the actual campaign itself as opposed to the actual actions of the campaign, right? So it's about the promotion that they're going to be out there on the road more. Even if they weren't out on the road more, just saying that would be enough to deter more people from from getting behind the wheel if they are intoxicated.
1: Yes, and some U.S. states actually publish in advance the location of where roadblocks are going to be because they believe that this is a bigger deterrent for people for drinking and driving, and they think that by publishing that, they'll discourage more people from getting behind the wheel and driving if they're in those areas.
0: Well, what is your thoughts on that? I mean, that sounds to me like it would probably help people who maybe are going out for a night of partying to be able to avoid these checks if they are planning to drive home afterwards.
1: Most people, by the time that they make the decision to go out, when they're thinking with their sober thought, are not planning to drink and drive and avoid a roadblock. Most people are going to exercise common sense and good judgment. And the people who aren't going to do that before they go out, when they know there are going to be roadblocks, are going to get behind the wheel no matter what the police are doing.
0: Okay, fair enough. I guess maybe it's just for those who are uh, planning to head in those directions so they can watch their speed a little bit more. Things like that uh, would probably help some drivers who are maybe heavy-footed and things like that to pay a little bit more extra attention if they're in those areas if they are promoting where they are going to be. I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't hate it, but uh, that being said, hopefully I don't actually need to use that information because I'm driving the way I'm supposed to. Awesome <laughs> awesome stuff, Kyla, as always. Really appreciate you taking the time. So thanks so much for doing this, as always, on Monday, and we'll look forward to doing it again next week.
1: Great. Thank you for having me.
0: Awesome. There's Acumen Laws. Kyla Lee. Lots of good stuff there here today. So thanks so much, Kyla. Appreciate you taking the time as always. And uh, yeah, like I said there, of course, RCMP stepping up enforcement this month as part of their annual counter attack impaired driving campaign. Um, And as Kyla was saying, I guess it's the idea of a campaign more than anything that actually helps to keep people or prevent people from drinking and driving or taking drugs and driving any form of impairment and getting behind the wheel. So keep that in mind. Um, You should keep it in mind at all times, but I guess even particularly now as enforcement does start to... Go up.